Folks can win if we don't do our part. And if you've got election deniers serving as your governor, as your senator, as your secretary of state, as your attorney general, then democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. It's not an exaggeration. It is a fact. So I call them election liars, not deniers. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK People Powered Radio in LA, 90.7 FM, also in Santa Barbara, 98.7, San Diego's 93.7, and Ridgecrest in China Lake, California's 99.5 FM. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. We're heard down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and even Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. Just try to avoid us. You can't. Well, maybe you can. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us as we are now down uh, to basically hours before the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, Actually, they're underway now, but uh, before the election day on Tuesday, and apparently I cannot repeat it enough, Um, American democracy's uh, final moment in the sun may be here, depending on the way things go on Tuesday, or at least the last free and fair elections that we may see for many, many years, if ever again, in these United States. Am I, uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to understate it. (laughs) No, I just want to say it's the last chance for democracy. The train is leaving the station. Get your ticket and get on, please. We all need you. No (laughs) kidding. Uh, Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. I mean, I smile when I say that, but really it is it is very serious. Well, you know, I have been spending some 20 years of my life at this point sort of warning against the moment that I see us as finally confronting in a sense, in this uh, this election, we've, we've been heading here for a long time, as I have been trying to warn over these public airwaves. That includes my work during, uh, you know, going back to the Bush junior years when this assault on democracy itself really began, as I see it, up through my warnings about the possibility of Donald Trump winning an election in 2016. 
when the bulk of the nation was laughing at the idea as a joke. Oh, that'll never happen. And then, yes, throughout all of the years with Democrats in the White House, when they never took the threats to democracy as seriously as they should have when they had the chance to protect it. Now, I'm happy to say I think they are. Whether it's too late for them to protect it or not, well, that's going to be up to the voters on Tuesday. I'm happy in one sense that uh, with the exception of two Democrats in the U.S. Senate, all of the others there and all of the Democrats in the House and the Democrat who happens to sit in the Oval Office today, finally, at least when it comes to voting rights, do seem to understand the necessity of reforming and protecting democracy and voting rights with bills like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act, both of which were passed by the House. But, yeah, thanks to those uh, two senators in in uh, two Democrats, all 50 Republican senators and two Democrats in the Senate, those bills, those critical bills have yet to be passed. And without enough Democrats to reform the un Democratic filibuster rule in the Senate. Well, that means uh, we need two more to counter the votes of those two right wing Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Without that, there will be no democracy or voting rights reform. But there uh, will be a democracy crushing ruling, most likely coming from the Supreme Court that would essentially make it impossible to ever have a free and fair election again in this country, at least for president, beginning in 2024. So, yeah, there is a lot at stake. I'll talk a little bit more about all of the above with my guests shortly, uh, who will be familiar, I think, to our listeners here at KPFK. But again, uh, those are the very real stakes that are on the ballot as I see it on Tuesday. And if you're thinking of sitting it out, well, my very progressive guest, as I said, joining us momentarily, recently wrote at Common Dreams to call that idea unconscionable. But first up, a not unrelated headline or two today, since I'm, I'm concerned about the survival of American democracy itself over the rising forces of American autocracy. But the media keep telling us that most Americans are most concerned about gas prices and inflation and the economy. Well, the final economic report from the federal government before Tuesday's elections was uh, released on Friday, and it was yet again a very good one, at least for those who really care about the economy. America's employers kept hiring vigorously in October, adding 261,000 positions, a sign that as Election Day nears, the economy remains a picture of solid job growth and, as AP adds, painful inflation. Friday's report from the government showed that hiring was brisk across industries last month, though the overall gain declined from the 315,000 new jobs in September, and that is actually a good thing. At least if your top concern is inflation. It means the red-hot job market, while still growing, is at least beginning to cool down a bit. It's still growing, but it's not growing at the same red-hot rate, which ought to, in, uh, to ease inflation pressures. That's the theory anyway. Ironically, of course, the more people who have jobs and are at work, the more money they have to spend. And, of course, that triggers inflation, even though most of that inflation is now caused by 
corporate greed and CEOs who say, uh, hey, they're, these uh, suckers and jumps are willing to spend more. They got more money for it. Let's just keep increasing all of our record profits. And we know this because they're saying it on public earnings calls. Correct. And it is it is doubly true in the fossil fuel industry where they are also uh, in addition to corporate greed, war profiteering. Hey, there's a war on. Oil supply is tight. Let's raise prices at the pumps. Never mind that we're already making record profits. We're big oil. The media and the consumers, they'll, you know, they'll believe we have to raise prices because there's a war on, you know. They'll take what we give them. Additionally, and uh, also ironically, uh, this is also a good thing for the, for those worried about inflation, as so many are. The unemployment rate rose from a five-decade low of 3.5% to a still healthy 3.7%. So still at a low going back decades, but increasing a bit in another sign that maybe, just maybe, the Fed and its chair, the Trump-appointed Jerome Powell, can begin to ease back a bit on raising interest rates as they were uh, hoping to cool inflation. A strong job market is deepening the challenges that the Federal Reserve faces as it raises interest rates at the fastest pace since the 1980s to try to bring inflation down from a near 40-year high. Steady hiring, solid pay growth, and low unemployment have been good for workers, but they have also contributed to rising prices, AP notes. Employers continue to be worried that it's going to be harder to hire tomorrow than today, so that actually suggests they don't see a recession on the horizon. That's good news from Betsy Stevenson, an economist at the University of Michigan. Stevenson noted that more than half of last month's net hiring was in industries like healthcare, education, restaurants, and hotels, for example which still appear to be catching up from the sharp job losses they endured during the pandemic recession, which uh, I guess I need to remind you, the Republicans who were in control at the time did little to prevent and actually implemented policies that made the pandemic recession far worse than it needed to be. Hiring in such sectors, therefore, will continue, she suggested, even if the economy slows. And they want the economy to slow, believe it or not. So they want to slow the economy to ease inflation. And yet they'll still be able to hire folks for healthcare, education, restaurants, hotels, etc. All of which led to the White House on Friday uh, describing it as a Goldilocks jobs report as they try to wrestle the difficult problem of inflation to the ground while avoiding a recession by keeping the job market strong. No easy feat. The October jobs figures were the last major economic report before Election Day, with voters keenly focused on the state of the economy, according to the recent pre-election polling in which Americans tell pollsters what they're most concerned about after hearing news reports describing to them what Americans are most concerned about. <laughs> so, uh, as the White House described it on Friday, a Goldilocks outcome for the White House in this report, a number that's not too low, not too high, but just right. At least that's how they see it. 
President Biden heralded the report on Friday, saying in a statement that the new data, quote, shows that our jobs recovery remains strong. He dismissed criticism from Republicans that the economy is headed toward a recession as he continues to receive low marks from voters on his handling of inflation. What it is that voters actually want him to do, of course, is unclear. Especially since it's actually a global problem and Biden does not have any control over inflation in other countries, and yet he's getting blamed for it anyway. Which, of course, is, you know what? You're the party in power. You're going to take the blame, whether you deserve it or not. Uh, Biden did say uh, one thing is clear, uh, quote, while comments by Republican leadership sure seem to indicate they are rooting for a recession, the U.S. economy continues to grow and add jobs even as gas prices continue to come down. Biden said in a statement reiterating that inflation remains, quote, our top economic challenge. Well, for now, anyway, if Republicans <laughs> and and this is not being uh, reported nearly enough, if I have time, I'll, I hope to talk to my guest about it. But if Republicans win back one or both House uh, uh, Chamber of Congress, they have already told us in their own words that they are willing to hold the good faith and credit of the United States government hostage in exchange for cutting Social Security and Medicare and cutting all of the various programs that uh, have been put in place by Joe Biden over the past two years. There will be a debt ceiling fight in uh, coming up next year. Now, there's a chance after the uh, uh, after the Tuesday's elections in the lame duck Congress, if in fact Democrats lose one or, or uh, both houses of Congress, that they could push through a bill to try to avoid this. There's some question whether they will be able to do it, whether they will be able to get enough votes to do it again, thanks to Manchin and Cinema and so forth. So uh, but most likely. If the Republicans take one or both houses, there will be a debt ceiling fight coming next year. And though the Republicans have taken that hostage before, they've always relented at the very last minute before, you know, forcing a first ever monetary default by the U.S. government. Essentially, um, forcing the U.S. into bankruptcy as it would then be unable to borrow money, needed to pay its credit card bill for stuff that it has already spent as approved by Congress and the White House. But if you think the economy is bad now, and it ain't, but even if you've been told to believe that it is, boy, oh boy, boy, howdy, just wait for what will happen next year with a Republican Party controlling the House or the Senate who is no longer afraid to kill that hostage. Let me be clear about that. They are no longer afraid to let the debt ceiling just lapse and, yes, kill the American economy along with it if that's what they think it takes for them to win back the White House and allow the American government to default for the first time in history. And by the way, the global economy will come crashing down along with that. Uh, so there's there's that. Yeah, they Seems believe like that should be discussed more. I don't yeah, know. But they, they do believe that a bad economy, it will help them politically. The uh, president uh, also discussed the job, not just a bad economy, a bad a global 
depression beyond yeah. recession. That's what they, uh, these Republicans are willing to do. And that's why I say this seems like if you're going to talk about the economy, seems like that should be more of an economic issue in advance of Tuesday's election than temporary inflation. But what do I know? I'm no economic uh, economist. Uh, but my guest is actually the son of a famous one. Yes. We'll ask him about that as well. Anyway. The uh, president uh, also discussed the jobs data during remarks on Friday at Viasat in Southern California. Oh, he's here. That's an American technology company that will benefit from passage of the Chips and Science Act, saying, quote, uh, I came here because this is Biden. I came here because it's an example. One of the bright spots we're seeing across the country where America is reasserting itself. Ten million new jobs in 20 months. He boasted uh, adding this morning, I learned that we added another 261,000 jobs this month, referring to the recently released numbers as a Goldilocks report. Well, Goldilocks or not, if the American people don't feel it or don't hear about it, well, they may or may not vote on it. But uh, more to what I am concerned about that I think all Americans should be most concerned about, and as Joe Biden himself has been reiterating over and over again, and as you heard our, not our previous, pre well, how do we call Barack Obama, our Former president, former two presidents ago, president. <laughs> yeah, uh, Barack Obama uh, talking at the uh, the the top of the show there in uh, in Arizona, I think uh, this week. The state of democracy itself is on the ballot, as those Democratic presidents have been arguing, as we have been arguing, and as I see it, that should bring every American of conscientiousness out to vote by or before Tuesday. And obviously, I'm not alone in that concern and that warning among progressives, even if I do fear that too many on the left still do not fully appreciate this critical moment in American and world history. Well, another progressive that does, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, an old friend of ours and of KPFK's, our flagship radio station here in L.A., Alan Minsky, joins us next for his closing argument before Election Day. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Don't you be no fool. You're gonna keep on a fooling around now, baby. You're gonna mess up a good thing. Yeah, you're, you're gonna, gonna mess up a good Welcome thing. back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Sawyer Hackett, a uh, senior communications strategist with the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, often known online as Bold Progressives, tweeted in response to today's continuing encouraging economic news from the federal government. Uh, Sawyer wrote, quote, the stock market is soaring. Gas prices are down 25 percent in the last 20 weeks. Inflation is lower than most industrialized economies. The job market is booming and unemployment is at historic lows. The media signal about this economy is irresponsible, he wrote. That media signal, of course, is that nothing else pretty much matters beyond inflation and gas prices, both of which are now caused largely by corporate greed and war profiteering and is affecting the rest of the world as bad or worse than it is affecting Americans. In other words, it ain't Joe Biden or the Democrats' fault because it's a global issue and at least Democrats have taken action to, in fact, reduce inflation, while Republicans have not only offered no plan to help reduce inflation, but have actually taken steps to make it worse. For example, when every single Republican in Congress recently voted against a Democratic measure that would have prevented price gouging by big oil. Still, politics ain't beanbag, as they say, and the party in power is always going to take a hit for uh, economic policies that Americans feel have hurt their pocketbooks, whether it is true or not. And the corporate mainstream media has spared no expense in underscoring that feeling that Americans have, that Republicans are happy to exploit, and that media are happy to report on yet again every time their own reporting leads Americans to tell pollsters that, yeah, it's really the economy that worries me the most. Meanwhile, American democracy itself is beginning to slip away, as we have taken pains to make clear on this program for weeks and months, if not years at this point. And while inflation is a largely temporary phenomenon, representative democracy lost is of an entirely different order of concern at least as I see it, or at least it should be for Americans, for the American media as well, and frankly for the world, which still looks to America as its shining democracy on a hill, as decidedly imperfect as our own democracy may be. But the threat that we now face in that regard, with a whole passel of far right-wingers in the Republican Party set to undermine that democracy entirely, now on the ballot, facing the very real chance of being elected to power this coming Tuesday, this is all very real. This is not a drill. Now, for my part, I have taken the unusual step, unprecedented, in fact, for the first time in my nearly 20 years of covering elections, of encouraging folks to vote for the party that will defend democracy over rising autocracy. That is the Democratic Party this year, and I support them not because I give a damn about the Democratic Party, but because I give a huge damn about democracy and the threat that it now faces from an increasingly autocratic Republican Party. As noted, this is not an imaginary threat. Bradblog.com's longtime legal contributor Ernie Canning recently wrote at the Brad Blog in an article headlined To Save American Democracy, a longtime Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, supporter on why we must vote blue in 22. 
Ernie wrote, quote, I was a longtime Bernie Sanders supporter. I still am. As an attorney and Vietnam vet, I have even served as a senior advisor to vets for Bernie during his 26th campaign. I also supported Senator Sanders during the 2020 primaries. That was then. This is 2022. President Biden, he wrote, was not engaging in hyperbole when he recently warned the nation that, quote, democracy will be on the ballot this November. Ernie went on to detail the upcoming Supreme Court case known as Moore v. Harper, which, if a majority of the corrupt, stolen and packed GOP justices vote in favor of this fringe constitutional legal theory known as the independent state legislature theory, well, that would mandate that secretaries of state, governors, state constitutions, even state Supreme Courts, even voters who uh, voted for initiatives on the ballot may have absolutely no say in anything that has to do with the rules and the laws for carrying out federal elections in those states. Only state legislatures would have such authority and it would be absolute, allowing them, for example, to vote for any slate of presidential electors that they like, even if the voters of the state voted otherwise. This is happening. This is not a drill. And only a Democratic House and Senate with enough Democrats willing to reform the filibuster and a Democrat in the White House can do anything about it. They'd be able to expand the size of the corrupt, stolen and packed Supreme Court to try to counter that majority if, in fact, that is what happens. But, writes Canning, none of this will be possible absent a massive turnout on or before November 8 by those who want American democracy itself to survive. Nothing less than democracy's survival is now at stake. In an update to that piece, by the way, the very next day, he went on to observe, quote, describing MAGA-controlled Republicans as a, quote, dictatorship party and, quote, the most dangerous political movement since the Civil War. Former Green Party presidential candidate Ralph Nader arrived at the same conclusion as the author, we the people must vote blue in 22 to save democracy. Now, if all of that is not enough, with the critical November 8 election now just hours away, Alan Minsky, executive director of the great progressive Democrats of America, wrote over the past weekend at Common Dreams in an op-ed headlined, No Person of Conscience Can Sit Out This Midterm Election, quote, the 2022 midterm election represents a unique and historic opportunity to protect our democracy and our right to equality before the law against an unrelenting offensive being waged by the reactionary right. He says we must mobilize now and vote for democracy, equality before the law and economic policies that support the vast majority of Americans by voting for Democrats in the midterms, which, frankly, Having known Alan for years is something I, I've never seen him write or heard him say, so it certainly caught my attention when he did. Joining us now for a bit of a closing argument for progressives before Election Day is my old friend Alan Minsky. He's the executive director at Progressive Democrats of America, or PDA, prior to which, by way of full disclosure, he had served as the longtime <laughs> program director 
at our flagship station here in Los Angeles, Pacific Radio's KPFK. And by the way, of uh, further disclosure, he has also been both a diehard progressive and a longtime Bernie Sanders supporter himself. Oh, Mr. Minsky, it has been a long time, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It is great to join you. And as someone who worked in the same building that was the flagship station for this great radio show, I do want to say that I know very well that there is no um, broadcast media project in the country that is more serious about protecting and preserving and improving American democracy than the broadcast. Mm. Um, the details that you bring to the airwaves are, and really, they're at a absolutely fantastic level for any scholarly study that could be made of American democracy. Any In history, people wow. will be seeking out uh, the same level of precision as you've documented the right wing's attacks on democracy and the peril that American democracy is in at the moment because of those attacks. So I just want to say everything that you just said is not only spot on, but it couldn't come from a more authoritative source than yourself. Well, and, it, and of course, everything you're saying is informing my thinking as well, as, and Ralph Nader's, and the people, really everybody who has their eyes open about what is transpiring in American society and the threats to democracy, which of course harmonize with threats to democracy around the world. There's a general right-wing authoritarian anti-democratic movement around the world, and yes, as you mentioned, the United States remains, you know, of course, there it's not ranked as the most effective of all democracies. We know about the negative impact of big money in America playing out in a greater way than some other countries. But in public perception around the world, if American democracy is toppled, this whole era we've lived through, understanding that we are mm -hmm. citizens of a democratic society, will be in such peril the notion of a society of equals will be in such peril. And yes, this midterm election right now is really essential because you have a sense of drive and empowerment on the reactionary right coming off of January 6th, coming off of Donald Trump's refusal to accept the election, that they are emboldened to take down American democracy in their efforts to create a permanent ruling party, certainly in a whole slew of states where they currently control the governorships and the state legislatures, but to basically set everything up for a 2024 election cycle where that will be secured even mm -hmm. further. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, if we are not able to get 52 senators, so a Manchin and cinema proof majority in the Senate, plus just a straight majority in the House, mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to pass the, le the legislation that will be antidotes to what the Republicans are pursuing across the country. And because the Senate map in 2024 is so weighted against Democrats, even if the Democrats control the presidency, you will have a four more years from 2022 through 2026 when at the state legislature and state levels, the Republican Party will be able to skew the electoral process in ways that... Sadly, the American public, they, you know, you'd think that a democracy, the crowning achievement of American society and American politics, that this show and the information mm -hmm. it provides would be, you know, basically 
everybody in civics classes across the country would be directed to the broadcast and the information it's sharing because it's about protecting our democracy. But it will be in real, real peril after basically six years of the federal government being unable to do what was necessary in 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed Mm -hmm. and what is necessary in 2022 now, which is to pass congressional legislation to protect our democracy against these attacks which are eviscerating it. And I'll just end with this. The Brennan Center, like the Bradcast, has, you can pretty quickly get the list of what has been passed by Republican-controlled legislatures since the 2020 election. Compare what those do to the electoral process versus what the John Lewis Voting Rights Act does. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the other electoral-related components of the For the People Act, mm-hmm. which was also passed by the House but not passed effectively by the Senate because of Manchin and Cinema in the last Congress, what the Democratic-passed legislation does absolutely matches up the best-known practices for a modern Democratic electoral system. Mm-hmm. What the Republicans do is the opposite. They are seen and universally understood to be limiting democratic practice and democratic participation and wounding democracy. And it's night and day. It, it, it is, and it would seem like something that, uh, you know, people would understand, would appreciate by now. I have a feeling uh, the lack of understanding comes from, frankly, the lack of media coverage, putting this uh, putting this all into the, the, the proper framing, the proper perspective. You know, uh, to be frank, Alan, and, and by the way, thank you for those very kind words, but, you know, I've had callers... Uh, uh, here at KPFK, uh, one recently uh, described me as a managerial level Democratic Party gatekeeper for, uh, for making this argument, uh, which which I wear like a badge at this point um, because. But, you know, the idea that even among the left and it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, I don't have a, I have a yeah. feeling we're not going to uh, move a lot of, uh, you know, right wing MAGA folks at this time <laughs> over to our right. side uh, of democracy over autocracy at this late hour. But, you know, there are a lot of folks here in Southern California and elsewhere, a lot of progressives, Alan, who, for reasons that I uh, don't fully understand, do not seem to appreciate the dangers that this nation now faces and what we as voters actually can do about it, even as imperfect as our choices may now be. Uh, You argue in your piece uh, that, quote, sitting out this election is a sin against all that progressives and people of conscience have fought for over the half over the past ha- century and a half. Uh, okay, yeah, but what if the choice that I have, let's say for Congress this year, Alan, is between a milk toast neoliberal Democrat who you know defeated my prefer- preferred uh, progressive Democrat or something in in the primary. Uh, the choice between that and a neo-fascist Republican or even just an old school right wing uh, you know, Republican. Why isn't staying home or maybe voting green, for example, why isn't that a better option to make sure that my voice is heard? Well, first of all, on the level of a, of a more traditional uh, Republican being on the ballot, um, they really haven't made themselves evident once they get to Congress. <laughs> the Republican Party has voted in total lockstep on almost every issue under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, a few of them were able to come across on infrastructure and um, the, uh, what was the other one that they passed, the CHIPS Act. Mm-hmm, but right. that's because they took, they were able to take certain things out of it and add other things into it. And um, 
and 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 that was the one instance where that kind of thing passed. There was maybe one other bill, mm-hmm. one other bill in this entire last Congress, and it had to do with uh, um, the the nature of the way that sexual abuse charges go forward in terms of um, you know when they time out and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> that was right. bipartisan legislation that got signed by the president in this last uh, his last Congress. Mm-hmm. So. You know, they do not break with the Republican Party, and on the issues of voting, they, they clearly in no way break with them. We've seen that. Right. And, and so, you're not, and that goes to the Democratic side. You're not voting for the milk toast Democrat. You're voting to codify Roe v. Wade. Mm. You're voting to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act because mm-hmm. it's a national vote. Look at it as a national vote to achieve those things. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of progressives, there's a bunch of things I have to say on that and why progressives should support this. Because, by the way, in your, in your introduction to the segment, in mentioning um, your uh, person who works on your project with you, who was a veteran who had supported Bernie Sanders, and mm-hmm. also mentioning Ralph Nader, there's one other name to add in there, Bernie Sanders himself. He is right. actually barnstorming across the country like right. no other politician around more than Barack Obama and Joe Biden, I think, put together in the number of places he's going to mm-hmm. lift up Democratic candidates for the ends that I just described. Now, Bernie, I think it's fair to say, has always stood for the same thing across his entire career. He is looking basically in broad strokes to bring to the United States the kind of um, social democracy, um, a sort of new, invigorated, New Deal set of policies to make uh, the economic justice components of American society real for the average person, to provide a living wage for everybody who does a day of work, uh, extrapolated across a year, uh, everything you want from the kind of social democratic policies that Bernie proposes. Those are not and have not been the core positions of the moderate dominant wing of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But the Democratic Party itself is a space of contestation. There's no revolutionary left in the United States that has any kind of stature. Of course, there are social <laughs> movements and people should participate in them. But to create change in our society and to create the laws that we all live inside of and that organize, you know, the society we live in, that happens through our legislative processes. And we can't just cede this territory, not just to a very dangerous right wing, but even to the neoliberal centrist Democrats. Now, in the wake of the Sanders campaigns, there, the progressive movement is now on the stage of American politics in a way that it wasn't only eight years ago, mm-hmm. okay? So what I would encourage people to do is to recognize by voting and preserving the democratic process. And by the way, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the one territory it really doesn't address is taking money out of politics. That would be a, a different kind of piece of legislation. It would have to be passed. It would have to be... Although the the freedom the freedom to vote act actually does uh, quite a bit as far as taking dark money out it, of politics. It does, especially in terms of designation and mm-hmm. knowledge of where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. That is a good component of that. Um, and um, though yes, that's that's a fantastic. It doesn't though eliminate mm-hmm. money from politics Correct. or even fully negate Citizens United. Correct, which I do believe we need. Yep. Now here's the thing though: in in preserving our democracy and improving it in the ways that the legislation that you cite and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would achieve, you are maintaining a capacity for a real progressive movement to to be vibrant in the United States. So this midterm vote opens up a space that I really want to encourage everyone listening who's a progressive, welcome them in to the movement. 
you know, for the organization that I'm now honored to be the executive director of, PDA, mm-hmm. but all of the organizations and components of the post-Bernie progressive movement, we can win this in the Democratic Party. Now, the Democratic Party establishment, are they welcoming of progressives? No. Do they do all sorts of underhanded things to try to undermine us? Yes. yes. All of that is real. <laughs> Nobody lives it right now more than people like myself. But here's the thing. In the two-party system, one of the two parties, the base, overwhelmingly actually supports the public policy positions of the progressive mm-hmm. movement inside the party. I mean, you saw this even in all 20 primaries. Democratic voters supported Medicare for All in the exit polls. Mm-hmm. Some of the states that Bernie lost at the highest level against Biden were some of the states that had the highest level of approval among Democratic voters for Medicare for All. Now, there's reasons why moderate candidates are defeating progressives in spite of the fact that on the policy level, the base of the Democratic Party already, without the influx of the people who have been frustrated with the party, they um, they support this and the reasons they haven't been winning. You know, there's arguments like viability, and then there's just the fact that the moderate candidates tend to have an avalanche more money than the progressive mm-hmm. candidates do across the country. Well, uh, but nonetheless, it's an incredibly powerful position for progressives to be in, where one of the two parties, the base of which overwhelmingly supports our policies, we can change this country for the better, but we have to preserve our democracy to leave that opportunity open. And that's why this election cycle is so important, and the work you do, Brad, and Desi, is so important. Well, you know, and thank you again, but, uh, you know, I I argue that uh, you can convince the Democrats. You can convince Joe Biden. You can push them uh, in the right direction. You are blank out of luck if, uh, you know, Republicans control either of these houses or the White House at this point, because that's where the Republican Party has has gone now. You know, that said, there has been and I think you're absolutely right. I think we see it all the way to the top, to the president of the United States, a movement to the left, thanks to the progressives who have pushed. We have, uh, you know, as far as presidents go, a pretty progressive president at this point, given how, thanks to, you know, progressives, he has been pushed in that direction. What you see with uh, student loans and so forth. No, it's not enough money for student loan forgiveness, but it's a lot of money. And it's something that seem- was, you know, seemingly unheard of before until progressives like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and so forth pushed for that. So uh, nonetheless, even with all of that and even with that movement that I see very clearly, uh, you know, I still hear it from you know, emailers uh, or in particular, as I alluded to when we open the phones here at KPFK, both sides are the same. Both are equally corrupt. They're they're fighting only for corporate interests. They haven't done a single thing for me. They haven't kept any of the promises that we gave them majorities to do last time. I guess, uh, you know, you've made clear that both sides you don't see as both sides are the same. I'm wondering, A, why you think so many on the left may feel that way. And, uh, you know, is it true? Did the Democrats, you know, one of the arguments is, well, why should I give them a majority again? They had it for the last two years. and They didn't do anything. How do you respond to that? Um, Well, I think that the... Look, the truth is the Democratic Party is a space of contestation. There are powerful forces that support the neoliberal bloc of the Democratic Party, 
and they're not just going to be washed away in an avalanche of support for the progressives, but they can be overcome within the party, but it really will require all the people you just described jumping into the party and supporting us. Why do, do, do I wish we could just instantly maybe like have a unified party of the working class and the working class who've been sort of bamboozled into supporting the, the Trump right um, join the Democratic Party? You know, that's a long-term wish, and it's sort of outlined in Bernie Sanders' politics. It's certainly in the sort of Jacobin wing of DSA. They mm-hmm. talk about that and sort of motivate in that direction. But the reality at the moment is that the neoliberal liberal, the liberals who are tied to, um, you know, the policies of the Clinton and the more conservative policies of the Obama years inside the Democratic Party, they probably feel like they have nowhere to go to. And of course, they're very committed to their power. So it'll be a struggle. I don't want to um, and that's why we need the people who are progressives who are sitting on the sidelines to join us. Mm. I think that they do sincerely want the society that we're trying to build. And I'm also not going to sit here and tell you it's going to be easy to build. We're going to face a lot of opposition from very powerful entrenched forces in American society. Mm-hmm. But our major weapon, and this is, again, I don't mean to be sitting here and falsely praising the host across on the other side of the, uh, you know, the, the dialogue here, but your focus on democracy and the tool of democracy and the improvement of that tool of democracy and to practice that tool of democracy is essential for the progressive left to embrace, I believe, to not be turned off by what seem like uh, entrenched institutional barriers to it even being a fair, fair opportunity for progressives to get involved. It is, a, it is a battle inside the Democratic Party. And I encourage everybody to join us. It's going to be fun, too. And I do think, yeah, I'm confident that in not too long a time, we can win this. And when Mm. we do win this, I do think we will start to draw a unified working class, middle class party together. And I'm guessing Jamie Dimon will go back to the Tory party at that point. (laughs) Well, you know, that's that's all well and good. And in theory, you're right. But the things that we're talking about right now are existential when it comes to democracy itself. And depending on how things go on Tuesday... Uh, it, it it may not matter who the hell you want to vote for in 2024 if the rules have been so corrupted that, you know, st- gerrymandered state legislatures, for example, can, you know, simply ignore the results of, of the people, the votes of the people and install their own uh, slate of uh, presidential electors. That's why, you know, I, I should note, uh, Alan Minsky, your dad, Hyman Minsky, right. uh, was a well-known, I think it's fair to say, leftist economist. Is that is that a close enough description? for the moment here? Um, sure. Okay. Sure. I, I don't know how much of his work has rubbed off on, on you or that you can speak to this, but but our corporate media... I heard about it a lot at a lot of dinners I, when I was growing up. I yeah. suspect you did. <laughs> uh, and uh, yet our corporate media, it seems to me, has made this election about economics, which is why I'm, I'm raising this, uh, as, as midterm elections often are. But... You know, was my description at the top of, in you know, describing inflation as a temporary phenomenon, by the way, amid an otherwise excellent economy in general, uh, but yeah, inflation... Phenomenal job numbers. Phenomenal job Phenomenal, numbers for, yes. For, for a capitalist economy, actually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's two, twice as many job postings as there are 
people on the unemployment rate. Yeah, right now. no, I know. So, with that said, though, inflation still, uh, you know, is very real. It very much does hurt people, hurts working class folks. But compared to what I see as the coming authoritarianism under Republican control, that will have a far longer lasting consequence. You know, to to pit those two democracy versus you know, long-term democracy versus uh, short-term problems in the economy. Is that a fair argument to make? And if so, why do the corporate media not seem to fully appreciate the vast difference there is between these two very real concerns? Well, I mean, I think it is uh, what you just described, uh, but it's even more, as you've also described, because the Republicans actually don't have anything constructive to say about inflation. Um. You know, it's a tough hand for an incumbent party to go up against inflation. Inflation, even as strong as the job market is, even as strong as some wage growth has been, it doesn't match up with inflation. It is, because inflation is as high as it is, about half. The wage growth is about half as high Mm -hmm. as inflation. Mm -hmm. And inflation is vertigo-inducing for the average household that doesn't know when when the next pay raise may come. And, um, And that's a very difficult thing to go up against. Um, I suppose in putting my analyst hat, I can't say that I'm particularly happy with the political fallout from uh, Fed Chairman Powell's moves. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that's also harmed the Democrats' chances. But what the way you frame the question is absolutely correct. And in fact, let's let's get honest about this inflation. This inflation, there is no analyst in the world who can honestly tell you that this, the roots of this are still not tied to the pandemic, okay, mm. and then the Ukrainian war. Mm. There's just, it's just a lie to make such an assertion otherwise. We all know that many commodities have not been available readily to the people who want to buy them. That has driven up their prices. Automobiles, of course, are the clearest example of this. You know, there, there was just a tax break that was put out in the IRA for buying an electric car. Go try to buy an electric car and see how long the line is. Guess what? People want their cars now, so they're willing to pay more. That produces inflation. Now, that's not the balance of it. The pandemic supply chain problems are starting to lighten. So what's happening is a lot of corporations are price gouging. Well, guess what? Only one of the two parties will even consider addressing that. Yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, it's, so your initial framing, democracy versus a temporary inflation issue, yeah, it, it really on the, on the long arc of history – it's tragic. It's tragic that we are heading into an election on Tuesday where this short-term impact in what is an otherwise, I would like to refer to it as a manageable economic landscape, because when in the current context, when you have the economy operating at its optimal levels, I consider that a manageable setup, because we have such wealth disparity and such little social mobility in the United States that we basically are operating in a economic context, which is a betrayal of the economic possibilities for a country as wealthy as ours. And that's where I think the Sanders agenda really speaks to a remaking and reforming of the economy, which is why the powers that be oppose it so strenuously, why they don't want democracy. When you have this level of wealth inequality in a society, guess what? The people who have the lion's share of the wealth, and that doesn't even capture the degree of it, and the lion's share of the political power, they don't really want those sort of meddling people out there, to paraphrase Scooby-Doo, to <laughs> mess things up for them, you know? Yeah. And so when you have this level of wealth inequality, you have a, a just to basically 
the the situation, the circumstances for the uh, powers to be, the very powerful people in the society, to want to suffocate democracy. Well, we, the people, have all the more reason then, because our way out of the wealth inequality can only occur through our democracy. The New Deal was a product of democracy. The labor movement even really requires support from electoral processes for it to be able to operate in our in our yeah. American context. So yeah. democracy is the solution to the economic issues of our time, and it is under mortal threat right now. It is indeed. I've got just a minute here, Alan Minsky. Uh, so I, I, I didn't even get to ask you about the, uh, you know, I'm very concerned about uh, if Republicans control either chamber of Congress next year, that they're going to force a, a debt limit hostage crisis. Yes. And right. uh, frankly, Medicare are, for all and Social Security. Yep, absolutely. And they're, they're gonna, they, it looks clear that they're going to do that. And mm-hmm. yeah, and we're going to end up with the U.S. government defaulting for the first time in history. So if you're concerned about the economy, Pay attention to what the Republicans, I believe, will be doing, because if you're worried about the economy, boy, you're going to have uh, worries on your hands uh, when that happens. Uh, but let me just ask you, uh, in, in as we head out the door here, uh, Alan, you know, it seems to me you make the argument that the 2022 midterms are indeed a moment of truth. So why is this not a landslide? I would ask. Good question, because to me and, and it sounds like to you, this is a no brainer at this point in the history of our nation. But it is not a landslide, at least according to the pre-election polls. Uh, by any stretch, it's going to be very, very close. Why is it not a landslide? And uh, I know it's not fair. 30 seconds. What can be done in these closing hours to change that equation, Alan Mitsky? Well, I would I would say there's a, there's a number of structural institutional reasons why it's not a landslide. On the one hand, as we've already cited, you know, inflation is a particularly nasty thing for you know, the average household that's basically operating on a de facto short-term fixed income basis. Uh, so that's a, that's a, that's a nasty thing to overcome. Powell, Fed, Fed Chair Powell's actions don't make it any easier. Um, but also I would just say too, uh, this is what we have to fight. And I don't want to limit this. The Democratic Party hasn't been welcoming for the participation. There was a lot of alienation, um, that was experienced by the legions of supporters of Bernie Sanders, by the way, who skewed very young. And my understanding of where things stand in this election is if young people get out and vote, at the level of what they did in 2018, let alone 2020, Democrats will win this election. But right now, that doesn't look to be where it is. And um, I think that does have a lot to do with a perception that the Democratic Party is not a welcoming institution. Well, again, for those folks, you have allies on the inside of the party. We want to work with you so badly. We want to be there for you. We will fight this fight together. We will win this fight together. But right now, it's essential that people do vote in this election to preserve the democratic process that will be the instrument that will allow us to win those victories in the near future. So if we can preserve the democracy, there's a bright future ahead. And by the way, on that front too, Brad, that's just not me being fatuously optimistic. We know that the public opinion polls show that there is a real appetite for Americans now 45 and under to overwhelmingly support basically the Sanders agenda. Mm-hmm. So, again, that, that is real. By the way, the enemies of democracy see that, too. One of the reasons they're acting the way they're acting. But it means we have to preserve this now. And the work you do, again, is so exemplary in laying out why we have to preserve democracy now and strengthen it. We can do that with a victory in this election. So I encourage everybody out there, yes, to vote Democratic on Tuesday, 
or before Tuesday if you're in a state where you can do that. I, by Tuesday for sure, and let's win this thing. I have you, I have known Alaminsky long enough to know that he is has never been fatuously optimistic about anything. <laughs> uh, Alan's yes. piece at CommonDreams.org is headlined: "No person of conscience can sit out this midterm election. Democracy and the very principle of a society of equals are on the ballot." And yes, it's about the economy too. I will, of course, link to that piece from Bradblog.com when we post the show tonight. You can find uh, he he is the executive director of the Progressive. Democrats of America. You can find their work at pdamerica.org or on the Twitters at pdamerica. And you can find Alan there as well if you'd like to uh, push back at him for a change. He is Alan Minsky on the Twitters. Alan, a delight speaking with you, my friend. We'll talk to you on the other side, I hope. Yep, for sure. Thank Thank you, brother. Thank you, Debbie. You know, I, I should also add, not only ha- have, has he not been fatuously optimistic, does he, Dwayne? <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know if he's ever been optimistic At about any, <laughs> ever, true. anything. True. And, you know, I think so. he makes an excellent case, and you make an excellent case now as well, that, hey, the last chance to save democracy very well might be the November 8 election next Tuesday. The only way out is through the vote. Very well might be? Very well might be? <laughs> Yeah. All right. We have to get out. Thanks again to Alan. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That's it. Uh, we will uh, see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.